Hello, and welcome to the A Conversation with Speaker Series podcast from the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute at Southwestern Law School. I'm your host, Orly Ravid, director of the Biederman Institute. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations with influential members of the entertainment, sports, and media law industries. Top-notch lawyers and other experts share their own journeys and provide insights into hot-button topics. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to not miss out on new episodes. Today's episode, we hear from Dina Lapolt, who founded her boutique transactional law firm specializing in intellectual property and entertainment law. Dina discusses her career, client representation of top musical artists, her legislative advocacy in co-founding the Songwriters of North America, and her involvement in the groundbreaking Music Modernization Act. Dina has been honored by the Recording Academy and received many other industry accolades, including Billboard's Power 100, Women in Music, and Top Music Lawyers. Now, without further ado, a conversation with Dina Lapolt. So, you were a musician first. Yes. And then you became a lawyer. So, a lawyer who advocates, obviously, for musicians. But first of all, can you explain even the transition from being an artist <laughs> to becoming an attorney? Why? How? All that. Well, if you would have told me back then that I was going to be a lawyer, I would have really thought you were crazy because, um, you know, I was a musician. I grew up playing music. Um, I went to college in music. I majored in guitar, so you can imagine I had a lot of job interviews um, <laughs> when I graduated. Um, but yeah, and one of the things I realized when I was an undergrad in the music department is that. Back then, when I went to college, there was only two majors in music, classical or jazz. It's not like it is now, where you can major in rock music and contemporary music. So I first picked jazz, but I had to change my major because too, mu- too many things in one song give me a headache. Um, <laughs> so I went into the classical music department, which was great. I mean, it was great. And learning about all these amazing classical music artists like Niccolo Paganini, who was like the rock star back in 1800, it was like amazing. I really loved it. But one of the things I realized when I was in music school is I, I realized two things. Everybody was better than me. And um, there were no other skills that they were teaching us. So there was no music business departments 35, 40 years ago, the way there is now. So I got into, like, um, joined the concert committee, started learning how to book clients, you know, in the Elting Gym, and, you know, got involved in all that. And then I started working for a rock star as a personal assistant because my girlfriend at the time was dating, my girlfriend's sister was dating him. He was the drummer for Kiss. And Kiss was from my little town in upstate New York. So I met the drummer when I was a, a sophomore in college, majoring in music, and I started um, helping him, because he had a management company called Street Gang Productions, and he, manages a, he managed a bunch of female thrash bands. This was back in the 80s. So I became a tour manager and a personal assistant for him. And I would go on tour with these crazy female, one of this, this one band was called Harry Carey, five crazy heavy metal girls. They were crazy, and I was on tour with these people. Um, we all got arrested at Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee, by the way. And they had to bail me out of jail, but that's a different story. Anyway, um, 
So I did all that, and I started to learn the business while I was in college. And it took me actually almost seven years to get my bachelor's degree because I would go on tour and I would do all these different things. Anyway, I finally got my bachelor's degree and became a manager, moved out west, because Kiss all moved out west. I moved out west, but Eric had, the drummer died shortly after I got here. And I was a personal manager. And it was back in the day where Green Day was becoming the big thing. Like, it was all the pop punk thing. So I started managing all these underage punk bands. And it was such a great time up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Gilman Street at Berkeley, it was really fun. And I did that, but it was a lot of work. And one of the things I realized is that everybody, and this is one of the things I realized. First of all, the Kiss lawyer nobody liked, okay, in New York. He had like a bow tie and he was really old and every time he walked around they'd go, Argh. So that was my only experience with the lawyer. But when I got to the San Francisco Bay Area, I realized like all these bands that had lawyers, um, everybody else was kind of treated like shit, honestly, except when the lawyer walked in, it was like Jesus. Oh, the lawyer's here. And then I realized that every, the lawyer's always getting paid, whether the show happens or it gets canceled or the CD doesn't sell or this, you know. So I started thinking about that and, um, that was an epiphany, but what happened is I, I, I was in a band, and my band got asked to be in a showcase in San Francisco. There used to be something in San Francisco like South by Southwest. It was mm -hmm. called SFO, and my band was picked to be a showcasing band, and in the mail, we got a pamphlet of passes to the conference, and I looked in the conference, and I saw a panel that said three music lawyers learn how to you know, talk about negotiating record deals. And I go, I'm gonna go to that. And my showcase was the night before, but I went there in the rain, wow. dragged my ass to this panel at 10 a.m. to hear these music lawyers talk about negotiating record deals. And I get there and I thought I was in the wrong panel because one guy had long hair, one guy had a tattoo on his neck, and another guy had two earrings. And I realized that this, they were the lawyers, and I was like, oh my God, I want to do that. And I ended up waiting in line to talk to the lawyer with the two, with the two earrings, because when I, I heard on the panel that his wife was in the San Francisco Philharmonic, and I was still a pompous classical musician. So I decided to go talk to him. And when I went up to talk to him, he go, and I was holding my demo tape, this is dating me, and he goes, I'm not accepting any unreleased demos, and I didn't realize I was holding it, so I threw it across the room, and he got shocked, and I said, I'm, I'm not here for that. I want to go to law school, and he looks at me up and down, and he goes, well, first you have to go to college, and I said, I, I went. I have a degree in music. Does that count? And he goes, I don't know. Call the law schools, and there's a line behind me, and I go, can I have a pen? And he gives me a pen, and I'm like, what are the law school names? And he's like, uh, Berkeley, Hastings, you know, Golden Gate, and I'm writing them down. I go, okay. So I went back to my house, and I called the law schools, and they said, yeah, your bachelor's degree, that counts. you got to take the LSAT. I said, great. So I signed up for that shit, and it was, and I, <laughs> like, within a couple months, and I started applying to law schools, but my score was terrible, and no one took me. But I met this girl in the LSAT class named Lita, and she was my trudging buddy, and she got into this law school. 
Um, and she said, you gotta, you gotta call them and, and get in. They let me in. And she did worse than me. Um, she goes, but I, I'm sure they let me in because I'm black and you're gay. Go call them and tell them you gotta get in. I said, oh yeah. So I called them up and I said, I wanna come in. And, they go, and I go, no, you need to let me come in. I'm gay, how can the laws for gay people change if you're not letting gay people into law schools? And the, and the guy goes, uh, oh, Dean Mead, Ken Mead. He goes, come and meet with me. So I prepared, you know, Alita prepared me, and I went down there, and I had the prevailing law. Bowers versus Hardwick, 1979, U.S. Supreme Court case. Homosexuality is not a fundamental right. I've got to change that. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want... And he's like, I'm going to let you in. <laughs> and he said, but I'm going to do one thing. You're going to come in for a year, and... Um, if you do well for the year, I'm gonna give you this exam, we're gonna call it the baby bar exam. And if you pass the baby bar exam, we'll allow you to continue on. But if you don't pass, you gotta go. I said, it's a deal. And I got into law school and it was amazing. I mean, it's the first time ever I could run my mouth and that's what you're supposed to do. And I started the Black Student Union because the only black person in the school was my friend Lita, and I thought that was horrible. So I started the Black Student Union, and she wouldn't even be in it. But I said, you gotta be in it for some credibility, all right? You gotta at least be in the flyer on the poster. Anyway, so we helped, like one of the things we did was help change the standardized testing rules to get into law school because I have dyslexia. So this LSAT shit, I was destined to fail that, you know? But when I got into law school, I did really, really well. And I, start, I formed a band, a lipstick lesbian band, and played this fabulous music with the hottest girls I could find. And it didn't matter if they could play it, I'll teach them. <laughs> and I did. And I formed this band, and we played every gay pride parade in the, in the country as I was in law school. That's what I did during law school. I booked myself playing all these gay pride parades, and I used the stage to advocate for gay rights. And that's how I supported myself. We're gonna have school. you back in June to play a gig here yeah. for gay pride. Uh, that was amazing. Um, so Sorry for the long No, 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 it's <laughs> awesome. This is really fun. Um, you have a tagline I think you use, because I've seen it in your emails, tough times never last, tough people do. Yeah. So, I don't know, like what, what led to that? <laughs> okay, so. My whole life I've been told, no, you're not, it's not gonna work. You're not gonna go to college because you're dyslexic. You're not gonna go to law school because you majored in music. You're not gonna open up your own law firm because you're in the music business and nobody, you're a woman and you went to the wrong law school and da da da, and just no, 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 no. And every single thing that I have, you know, that I've been told no, I've been able to overcome just because I'm like Forrest Gump. Like, this shit just happens, right, David? I've known David Helfand for 25 years. And every time I've hit an obstacle, I'm just able to overcome it just by sheer perseverance or figuring out a way to get it done. I didn't want to open my own law firm. I just couldn't get a job because no one would hire me. That's the reality. I mean, when I, when I passed the bar the first time um, in June 1997, well, I, got, I found out I passed in May of 97, but when I got sworn in June 3rd, 1997, 
Two days later, my ex-girlfriend's sister calls me, the one that went out with the drummer from Kiss, and she said, are you an entertainment lawyer yet? And I go, yeah, as of two days ago. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm Miss June, and I'm on the cover of Playboy. You should come live with me. By June 9th, 1997, I was living with Miss June in Sherman Oaks, and it was the greatest time of my life. Um, but I couldn't get a job. I was unemployable, because I went to the wrong law school, and back then, everybody wanted to hire people from Ivy League schools. I had a degree in music. I had tattoos. I was non-traditional, and, and I also had a horrible drug and alcohol problem. <laughs> um, a little sidebar. Um, so, another meeting, uh, for another meeting. But anyway, but I ended up interning for a music lawyer back then because I was unemployable and unhirable, but I ended up interning for him for free, and I waited tables to support myself. And I got sober when I started working there. I realized that my drug and alcohol problem was terrible. I mean, it was 10 months that I worked for him, and it was really hard trying to fit in not being a musician playing at night where it's acceptable to drink all the time and sleep, you know, whatever. And I don't know how I got through law school or school. I would be a periodic. I'd wait and wait and get through finals and stuff, and then I'd go on a binge or whatever. But when I finally started working at that law firm, it was pretty obvious that I had a drug. And also, the playmates did an intervention on me, okay? And you know you're really messed up when the playmates have to do an intervention on you, and that is a true story. You know, they all went around the room and told me how my drinking and using was affecting their life. I mean, it was really, I look back on it, it was quite remarkable, but they did, and they saved my life, actually. And, um, you know, especially Carrie is a dear friend of mine today, and she saved my life. And... Um, I got sober, um, and then, you know, I started not getting along with that boss because when I got sober, I had clarity for the first time in my life, and I was on fire. One of the firm's clients was a Fanny Shakur, and um, Tupac had just died two years before I met her, and I'd been sober maybe 60 days when I finally met her. And the way she would talk to me, she would drop these slogans, like, you know, it's only one day at a time, and you know, I keep coming back, and she would drop these slogans that I'd learn in the recovery rooms, and I said to her, are you, are you in recovery? And she said, oh, girl, I'm 13 years off crack cocaine. And I'd go, I'm, I'm in recovery too, I'm an alcoholic. And she's like, oh, I knew I loved you, and she's like hugging me, but my boss is horrified. <laughs> um, but I connected with her, and death row, Records was claiming that they had, they owned all the unreleased recordings of Tupac Shakur. And everybody was just going to let them keep them. Like, they literally were going to, like, Interscope was going to give her multi-million dollars, and they wanted her to sign these contracts that she, that they owned everything. And everybody was going along with that. And she did not like that. And she called me up and she said, how... How can they own my stuff, Dina LaPole? And how can, what is a loophole? How do, how do they own it? You need to tell me how they own it. So I go, okay. And I'm like sober eight months now. And I got Don Passman's book and it was all marked up with post-its. And I, and I looked and I go, okay, let me check out this agreement with death row. There's no work for hire. 
agreement. There's no work for hire in this agreement. And, it, and Don Passman says it's got to have a work for hire in there or an assignment of rights. It's not in there. Make a note. Wow, two Tupac is a trademark, two PAC. Let me look. There's no rights to use Tupac's trademarks in there. Don Passman says you got to have the rights to use the trademark. Write it down. <laughs> then, oh wow, California has this thing called the rights of publicity, which is the commercial use of your image. And if you're famous, that image is really valuable. But there's no rights to use Tupac's picture on the death row CDs or Interscope. Let me write that down, because in California, where we live and where Tupac died, or Tupac's business was, they need to get the rights. So I wrote that down. And then I called Buffini and I told her. And she goes, oh, we got some loopholes. Dina LaPolte, let's go. So that was just it. So I just kept doing the next right thing. Like, I didn't have a plan. I just kept, I just followed what the next right thing was. And I, I didn't think about the fact that I was gonna go up against like this really mean guy that like hurts people and is like a gangster. I don't, I didn't think that far, you know? Um, I just needed to help her. And you did? I, yeah, I helped her. And yeah. so, and from then your, can you, I mean your practice is so varied, but can you describe enough just so we get a sense of the full range of types of clients and types of work that you do and what's awesome and... Well, the best thing now about having my practice, which I opened it in 2001 because Afeni would tell me every day, you need to open your own practice. All these people sucking off your titty. That's what she was saying. <laughs> <laughs> you're, just, you're just quoting, I know. You know. No, but that's her exact words, RIP. I can hear her say it to me and I, I finally opened my own practice because she was like pushed me to do it. But now, so it's been since 2001, so almost 20 years, and you know, I gotta say that I'm just, I'm really, I'm really grateful that I'm still here. Like, oh my God. You can take a minute. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I can't believe it. You know, I'll be 22 years sober in April. So I kept doing that. That's a big part of it. Um, but I kept doing the right thing. And one of the things that I've, I've always stuck to is I don't have any conflicts of interest. I never really understood how you could switch sides. And for me, there's no gray area. I'm, I have to be black and black or white. You know, I'm either I, I have to pick a side. I have to know. So, I've just never had conflicts of interest, and I realized that when I started having no conflicts of interest, that not everybody everybody has conflicts of interest. So that was a unique thing to me. So mm -hmm. I I started to find my niche. Mm -hmm. Like when all these people said I couldn't do it, and I'm doing it. Like I, I had to, Jay Rosenthal, who you knew, your partner, who since just passed away this you know, past year and who was a very dear friend of mine who was one of my mentors and always believed in me, even when I didn't believe in myself. He's, it's a, it's a terrible loss to his passing. And 
And he would always tell me, you need to find your shtick. That's what he would say. He goes, you need to find your shtick. So you need, you need a shtick, he would tell me when we go to South by Southwest. So he's like, you know, your brand, your shtick. And I'd say, okay, the conflicts of interest thing. He goes, that's a big shtick. We need to say that. Every time you go on a panel, we need to say that. That's a big thing, Dina, because people in our business have conflicts because we're lawyers. He, he would say, we're like high-powered hookers. <laughs> that's what he would say to me. We're like high-powered hookers, Dina. When someone wants services, we provide services. <laughs> we don't ask what kind. We just sign them up. And he goes, but you, like you are only on the side of the artist. That's part of your shtick. So we got to develop that shtick. So that was like something that was his kind of like his advice to me, you know? Um, so he would say that to me. And then another thing, too, is that I would always get the gr agreement signed. As David Helfand will tell you, that was also something that was non-ordinary in our business, <laughs> is that, I mean, there's still producer agreements from Thriller that aren't signed out there, people, you know? Right. I mean, that's and just- And like A-list talent never signs. I mean, right, the, right. So yes. I would always market myself like, oh, get all the contracts signed before the record comes out. And people are like, really? And I'd be like, yeah, I will. And I'd work 24-7 to do that, you know, 24-7. So I started doing, those things started becoming my brand. No conflicts of interest, always get the agreement signed. And then the other one that started happening, because I just wanted to do the right thing, is that I was always available. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I realized that people got upset about is that they couldn't ever reach people to get the deals closed. Yeah. So I say I'm available 24-7, and we're still available 24-7. I know. I thought you were going to take a call during this talk. You might I still texted my client and told them to call this other lawyer who's sitting in the office right now. But I, we have 10 lawyers at my firm, which is, again, remarkable, considering where I've come from. And we are 24-7 because we have clients all over the world. Um, and it's constant. And I have two lawyers here, Jasmine Berusen and Alex Rose. Wait, raise your yes. hand. Here they are. They can attest to the fact that we're 24-7. Definitely 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> and do great legal work, especially on our release. But it's, um, <laughs> she's going to bust your chops forever on that. No, no, I'm happy about it. No, I was impressed. I was impressed with the speed and the excellence. Um, can I ask you about the MMA? Um, because it's, it's been around for about a year, but I feel like so many people don't yeah. understand it. You were such a big part of it. So first of all, I mean, for anybody who doesn't understand the gist of the Music Modernization Act, can you give us a gist? Here's an overview of it, Okay. Inter okay, when, when, when President Clinton signed in to the, signed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and it became law in 1998, it created, a it created a performance right in a digital transmission of a sound recording for non-interactive uses only. It never anticipated an interactive use, okay? So the difference between Sirius uh, and Pandora, well, so non-interactive Pandora. The difference between Sirius and, say, Spotify is that you can't interact with Sirius. So when Spotify and Amazon and Apple started developing all these interactive services, the law didn't provide for that. And people started suing left, right, and center. But then the music industry kind of made a pact. This was after Napster. And they said, we'll allow these services to coexist 
but we have to figure out how to pay people. Well, the publishers and the performing rights societies went apeshit because they said, well, you know, we, there's a reproductive right in there as well. When the law only provided for non-interactive services, so there was a performance right for, you know, getting paid to ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, or GMR, but that was it for publishing. So the publishers loosely agreed with the interactive services that the interactive services would pay a, re a mechanical royalty in addition to a performance royalty. It was not the law, it was just like a deal, a deal to move forward technology. But what happened is the services got so big and so successful and the recordings can negotiate in a free market and the publishers are regulated by compulsory licenses and the PROs are regulated by consent decrees. So they are not able to negotiate in a free market, but the publishers gave the services a license in exchange for advance money on mechanicals just to allow them to use the songs. Well, what happened is a lot of the independent publishers and the independent songwriters who didn't give advances started suing the crap out of Spotify, and the judges started ruling in their favor. Most you guys know about Melissa Farrick and David Lowry, who you literally kicked off this entire negotiation, and they get a lot of credit here. So when they won these massive lawsuits, the tech community started freaking out. All during this time, Congress was already having hearings on copyright. So 2013, the then copyright register was Maria Palante, and she gave a speech and at one of the big law schools, I think it was Columbia. But that speech ended up being, she was asked by Congress to come and approach the, the, the House Judiciary, which is the, law, the largest committee in Congress that oversees copyright. And at the time, Chairman Bob Goodlatte, a Republican for Virginia, ran the committee, now it's Jerry Nadler, and he was very much into copyright. By the way, Republicans love copyright. So what happened is she, they opened hearings for copyright, and they started investigating copyright. And Jacqueline Charlesworth, my very good friend, was the general counsel of the Copyright Office back then, and they started having all these hearings. And we started figuring out what to do. We started creating like all these different laws, Songwriter Equity Act, the Fair Pay, Fair Play Act, and all these different acts that were not getting traction. That was the start of it. But what happened with the Spotify lawsuits that gave them a lot of leverage. During one of these hearings that I was testifying at UCLA, Bob Goodlatte, Chairman Goodlatte, literally said, there's a deal to be done here because I was testifying and on the other end was the lobbyist for Spotify. And when we started brawling, arguing in the testimony, <laughs> Chairman Goodlatte on record says, there's a deal to be done here. You guys gotta work this deal. But long story short, so Doug Collins, who's a Republican from Georgia, he started with the Songwriter Equity Act and it wasn't getting a lot of movement. But when we realized if the publishers agreed to a compulsory license with the interactive services where they would get the license, because right now they needed permission. If they got a compulsory license, what would we want to give that away? Now, a lot of the publishers, independent publishers said, no, Dina, you're gonna be copy left. And it's like, look, 
They're holding millions of dollars on an unallocated mechanical royalty income <clears throat> that's not going to the melissiferics of the world. They're going to the huge music publishers and the big songwriters of today, but the little songwriters and the independent publishers are getting nothing and they're getting left behind. So if we agree to give them a compulsory license, let's put together our wish list of what we want. And we literally put together a wish list of what we wanted, which was all this stuff from the Songwriter Equity Act, you know, all these things. And we left the labels out of all this, by the way, let me tell you this. So we secretly put this together, and I'm gonna tell you who put this together. Doug Collins, David Israelite, and Bart Herbison who runs the NSAI, in secret, they put this together. And then they told me what they were doing. But let me tell you when they told me what we were doing, because this is an important part of the story, because God put, does things for you, and you don't know why this is happening. And then you look back and you go, oh my God, wow. So they were working on this in secret. And around this time, in April of 2017, I got a terrible neck pain. And it ended up, through lots of doctor's appointments and fighting with different doctors, it, it was, what it was, it was an infection in my neck that turned into a deadly bacteria. And I had the sense to go to the ER, even against doctor's advice. But I'm glad I did, because within four hours of being in the ER, I went into septic shock. Wow. And if I wasn't in the ER, I would have been dead. They rushed me into emergency surgery, and I had a cervical disectomy and an interior fusion. So they had to take out two neck discs, and they had to do all this. I since got a neck lift. That's why I look so good. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> but the point of the matter is, they did. And good thing I had all this skin here when they did it, because if, my, if I had a neck lift before that, they would have had to go in the back of my neck, and they would have had to move my vocal cords, and I would have had a speech impediment. So they went through the front, and I just couldn't eat for a while. I had a lot of trouble eating, because my esophagus had been moved. But I had to go after the hospital, being in the hospital for however long, I went to a rehab facility and I had to learn how to walk again and raise my hands above my head and all this other shit. So I went into the rehab facility and in the rehab facility I did what I always did. I need to get out of here. I need to do, so I did everything. I said, I did Ayurveda yoga and I started helping all the other patients that were despondent and nobody came to visit them. And I was in the music industry, so I got 54 deliveries in three days, flowers and cupcakes and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So I'm bringing flowers and cupcakes to other patients' rooms and I'm making them do Ayurveda chair yoga with me and I'm doing all this stuff and helping these people and I'm getting better. I'm getting better. And I get out of the rehab and I have my little walker can't move my neck, and I can't go into work. I can't be around anybody because I have a pick in my arm. And I had to have a nurse come over every day to give me an IV antibiotic. So I couldn't go to my law firm. And because I was on all these different medications and antibiotics, Sarah Scott, who runs my law firm, she's the managing attorney at my firm, she took me off all client matters. She says, you can't make decisions. And I said, wow. So I sat in my backyard, and I get a call 
from Congressman Doug Collins and David Israelite. And they go, we gotta let you in on it. Are you better? We heard you're out in the hospital. I said, yeah, I'm better. Thanks for the flowers. They go, good, we're gonna, we heard you got nothing to do. So we're gonna let you in on a little <laughs> secret. And they let me in on what they were doing and I sat in my backyard and I sketched out all this stuff with them that turned out to be the Music Modernization Act for three months in my backyard. And when we got it all together, and it was amazing, we let in what we were doing with ASCAP and BMI because some of it affected them, like the 114i and some of the stuff from the Songwriter Equity Act affected them. So when we let them in, they were mad because we'd gotten so far down the path before we let them in on what they, we were doing. And by now I'm back to work. This is October of 2017. We let them in. They have all these comments, da 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 but we worked that out, it's all good. And then what happens is it fell apart. The first time it fell apart was because, um, yes, Chris Harrison was running DEMA. And we, we, okay, so before we hired Jacqueline, Jacqueline left the copyright office. She was the general counsel, but it fell apart because nobody was getting comments back from DEMA. The Digital Music Association was the trade group for the, all the technology companies. We all got comments back to our, to the deal, to the Music Modernization Act. They were the only ones that didn't give comments back, and it was like four weeks now, and everybody was freaking out that they're going to renege, they're going to do this. So I'm in D.C., ironically speaking, at a law school like this, at the He Who Shall Not Be Named School of Law, otherwise known as the Anton Scalia School of Law. <laughs> and I was speaking at that conference, and I get a call right off my panel from Congressman Collins, who's freaking out, or his staffer freaking out, Sally Rose Larson, that Congressman Collins is throwing in the whole towel. It's over because we just got comments from DEMA, and they reneged on everything. Well, I look at Robert Levine from Billboard. I said, cover me. I'm going to Congress. And he goes, cover you. You're on the panel. I said, you can handle it. And I zip off in an Uber. <laughs> and I go across town. And I get to Congressman's office. And I go, we need to get everybody in a room. We need to get DEMA in the room. And we need to get ASCAP in the room. And BMI in the room. And the NSAI in the room. And, and NMPA in the room. And he goes, how are we going to do that? And I go, you're going to compel them because you're a congressman. Isn't there some law that we can compel? <laughs> Let's compel. So anyway, we sat there, me, Congressman Collins, his chief of staff, Brendan Belair, and Sally Rose Larson. I'm the only Democrat with all these nutters. And we're sitting in there. <laughs> and we're calling people. We broke it up. So Doug called the big people. Doug called David Israelite, Beth Matthews, Mike O'Neill. We called all the staffers, all the lobbyists, and we said, Doug wants to meet with you tomorrow it's at 8 a.m. So it's now 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and they said, everybody said, when's the meeting? We said, tomorrow at 8 a.m. And they're like, what? And Bart had to fly from Nashville, and Beth and Mike had to, like, everybody had to come. That was it. We're, he's compelling you. We're compelling you to come. <laughs> Some law Congress compels tomorrow, 8 a.m. Click, you know? <laughs> And I also called a lot of the lobbyists. And, they, and so when DEMA came, Chris Harrison, my good friend, and some of his lobbyists from Amazon and Spotify, I think he was shocked that the lobbyists were there because I called the business people. So 
my job was to call the business people of these companies and say, your people, are, your people are fucking everything up. So they sent all their lobbyists. We got in that room, and we had to come to Jesus in that room. And it was incredible. And we put it all back on the table. And the problem was not that Dima was reneging. Chris just wasn't a music lawyer. So a lot of these music concepts he would cross out or do these weird things. And people, we just, in Washington, they go ballistic. You know, everything is like a, a 911. And that's what happened. So once we talked through the issues, we realized they weren't reneging. They just, just didn't really get what we were trying to do. But we were all on the same page. So now the labels didn't know. So I had lunch booked with Carrie Sherman that day. And he fit me in, because he could only, it's 12 to 12.30 at Tosca, I have a half an hour, but I want to see you. And he ran the RIAA. So I zip, and we were in that meeting for like three or four hours, you know, so I zip across town to go to Tosca, and um, I'm at the lunch, and he's like, it's good to see you, what are you doing in town, and da, da 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 I said, well, I was speaking at this event, but I blew it off because, you ready? <laughs> We've been working on this bill, did, and I call, oh, Michelle Lewis from Sona call, dubbed it the Flow Act, Fair Licensing of, work, of Online Works. So I said, we've been working on this thing that we're calling the Flow Act. He goes, what are you talking about? And I proceeded, he had a half an hour for me. We ended up walking, after I told him what I really had just done, he's like, oh my God. And he like calls his assistant, who I love, and he's like, I'm bringing Dina over, cancel everything. And we go over there, and I proceeded to lay out for him everything we all agreed to. And he's like, but we're not at the table, so this isn't a deal. I go, why are you at the table? This has to deal with mechanical royalties. You're not at the table. He goes, we have a pass-through right. I said, that shit's over. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, we have a pass-through right. It's in the act. I said, that shit's over. We have precedent now. You have given us, you refuse to get in a fight with the services on the mechanicals. You said, no, deal with the publishers. So we've been dealing with it. You let your pass-through right go, and we're done with you. The pass-through right is over. He's like, this is not okay. I said, call David Israelite. Good to see you. And I left. And I called <laughs> David Israelite. I go, the labels, no. And he goes, my phone's blowing up. I go, I'll see you in LA. And I get back on the plane. And that became how the labels, so then they send through their three-page document of what they want to change in the bill. And that, we laughed our asses off about that for like five days. Wow. Yeah, none of that happened. You know, we were way far down the path. And the one thing I realized is that the performance right for sound recordings is never going to get passed because the NAB will oppose it. And if, you, and if the NAB opposes it, you're done. It's not going to happen. There's no congressman or senator that's going to go against the NAB. They all need local radio to get reelected. They're never going to do it. It's never going to pass unless, you know, there's some kind of deal worked out. So that had to go off the table first. But at the end of the day, they did get the three label pieces in there, which was the producer's right, which was important for overseas, because even though we recognize producers here, via letter of direction, it wasn't in the statute, and overseas their money was not getting passed through to them. And by the way, does that mean that folks don't need to deal with the letter of direction anymore? How does it work? 
Yes, that's true, okay. starting in 2021. Okay. I mean, we're moving towards that. And by the way, even though I was involved in all this stuff here, the implementation of the MMA, I'm not involved with. Right. That is very, very confidential, high stakes. That's now being handled by the MLC board. Okay. Um, and I'm not involved in that because they're all very signed NDAs. It's very confidential. They're in the process of still hiring vendors and implementing I'll skip my it. question about that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but this is how kind of this came about. So just so you know, we're technically out of time, but I want to just tie a bow on this and we could keep you here all night but you probably have things to do um ab5 ab5 is a problem <laughs> i didn't have to ask a question no no it go. is a it's AB5, awful go. it's awful and you guys have to rally against this and i gotta tell you something i'm just now still i still have ptsd from the mma okay i am like now still coming up for air trying to like figure out what's going on with my you know what i mean i'm like whoa plus i'm raising twin boys so i'm like got my head plate full so some of you guys need to step up and fight this this thing became law january 1st 2020. okay it's terrible and it was meant to regulate uber and lyft but the unattended consequences of how it affects music and entertainment yeah. are terrible yeah. Okay, because what if it's going to kill the industries here. It's yeah, I'm a, if I'm a producer, okay, and I'm calling Orly to play guitar on this song, and I'm calling Alex to come in and play the trumpet, and I call Remy to do her vocals so I can pitch the song to Rihanna. That's what I do. I pay Orly two hundred bucks. She signed the no, work for hire. Four hundred bucks. Oh. <laughs> hey, Alex, come on. You know, and this is how we we work in the community. This is how the this is how our business functions. We are we are musicians. So now with AB five, it's saying that we have to, you know, sign everybody up to be employees and pay them insurance and all these other weird things. This is this is not. This is, we are not Uber. This is not how- And yet fine artists are exempted. There's a whole list of categories that are exempted. Lawyers are and not- Right. You know, and, and barbers are not. There's a whole bunch, but, uh, um, well, so we take it. We don't like AB5. Um, there are a couple of little bits and then I'll save the rest of the questions for the reception. Um, so what are the really uh, hardest parts of your practice that you, you obviously love supporting artists. Yeah. And you love being an advocate and you have a robust practice across so many categories of, of law, actually. You've dealt with immigration, right? I mean, you've yeah. had really incredible- I didn't mean to, but that was when 21 Savage got taken. I had all these friends in Congress then that helped me from the MMA. So I called them up. I'm like, my guy was taken. And they're like, oh, what can I do to help? I'm like, let's get him out. <laughs> and they're like, okay, let me make a few calls. And it was like, whoa, this is, I'm on it. So that was another thing I was on. And I learned about all that. Yeah, you really dive in, right? I just keep calls. doing the next right thing. If someone needs me, that's why I can't have any conflicts of interest because if I'm on your side, I'm on your side for life. Like, I can't turn that off. If you get taken by ice, I'm going to lose my shit. Okay, like I am gonna help do that. I don't know how, I'm just gonna figure that out. Yeah, that's amazing. You know what? Can't end on any better note than that. I just want to applaud you for that. Thank you so much. And, I mean, I'd like to keep you here all night, but I know you have stuff to do. So I think we should just say thank you and then we'll just ask you remaining questions during the reception. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. We're good. Are you on a time? We're, we can go forever, but we're, we're 820.
Up to you. You can no, I can. Go. All right, we're, we're going to go a little bit more. We're going to have a couple more questions. All right, let me ask you about TikTok. Do you and... guys want me to leave? Yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, okay, so I do want to let folks ask questions. One student, uh, I have a couple of advanced student questions. One is about TikTok. Do you have, like, in terms of the platform, is it great for artists? Is it, a, 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 you know, it's music infringement? Flexible. Okay, all services infringe music. We have to figure it out. We are done with the days of technology versus the music community. We are one community. So in order to develop things, people are going to come up with stuff, TikTok, Instagram, and at first it's going to start infringing on these things, but on music and on rights. But now we have relationships with people and we can call up and say, like we tried to do that with Peloton. Hey, knock, knock, that's really a sync license. No, it's not, it's a performance right. No, she's up there doing things weird, you know, to the music, <laughs> okay? And there's like video behind her and doing this stuff. This is a sync license. No, it's not. Honey, if I put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig, okay? This is the thing, and they didn't listen, and they got sued. Yeah. And, and my experience with this is that the new services are not doing that. So when they get a call from David Israelite, okay, which is the big gun, or now Mitch Glazer, or or Richard Burgess from the A2IM, and they're set, and they're told, like, this is an infringement, and we got to work out a deal, they start talking. This is a really big change from how it used to be. And also what we do is we don't all of a sudden start suing and sending takedown letters because we do recognize that our fans, our clients' fans are loving these services and our clients will look and see our clients doing videos to TikTok. And it's right. like, so we have to be sensitive to pulling things down. So now the phone call is, hey, I'm, you know, David, I'm David Israelite. I represent the music publishers and, uh, you're gonna get in hot shit unless we work something out. And these people come to the table pretty much almost immediately. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Right, Angela? <laughs> are, there, uh, I, are there any questions from audience members that I haven't already addressed? And if you ask it, I will then call it out again in the mic. Uh, you've seen as you have experienced changing laws, uh, the, the Talent Agency Act doesn't allow producers, mixers, right. and contributors that you were talking about to be represented by lawyers without lawyers right. technically violating the act. Do you see that as something ever being changed? Or you okay, uh, great question. So he asked about the Talent Agencies Act with respect to yeah. record producers being represented by lawyers. The Talent Agencies Act basically says that you can't procure employment unless you have a talent agency's license. And in 2013, there was this case, uh, Mario Solis versus Bond Party, <laughs> um, where basically lawyers were always kind of seen as an exempt exemption from this, but the Solis case specifically said lawyers are not exempt. This is a problem. So I started fighting against this. And this is right when Congress started taking off on federal uh, copyright hearings. But I started fighting against the Talent Agencies Act, and I hit a huge roadblock, which we have to pick up this fight again. The roadblock is you can't go up against labor in California. It's like going up against the NAP in federal copyright, you're gonna lose. Going up against labor, you're gonna lose because California is the biggest labor state in the union and you go up against labor, they're gonna crush you like a bug. And I learned that because I kind of got crushed as a bug. But let me tell you, 
I got my talent agency's license so nobody could come at me, okay? So, and, and the labor commissioner, because I do all these things left and right. I'll introduce Orly to this one, put him in a studio, do this. So I violate the Talent Agency Act 24-7, but I got my talent agency's license. And my commission is zero. So if I ever got brought in front of the labor commissioner, I'd be like, yeah, my commission is zero to do all this free work. So where's the damage, right? So I got my talent agency's license so I can advocate against it. Because one thing that they do legislatively is they try to take you down. So this is House of Cards, Claire Underwood. I learned so much from Claire Underwood besides her dress, okay? Because when I go to, go to Washington, uh, my fashion is inspired by Claire Underwood. And I'm all up in that with the tailored suits and shit. Oh yeah, it's fabulous. But your opponent will take you out. So they sue you, take you out, whatever. So I didn't want anybody to take me out when I was advocating against this. But here's what you all gotta do. Law students in here, this is how we get rid of the Talent Agencies Act. Create another exception on the Business and Professions Act because the Business and Professions Code excludes attorneys for real estate. Look at it, I forget the exact law, but this was my new angle. If I didn't get all distracted by the MMA that turned into the MMA that took me almost you know, four years of my life advocating for, but you go towards the Business and Professions Code and there's a part in there that excludes attorneys under real estate. Like you have to have a license in California to, to sell real estate, but it excludes attorneys. So if we can get some kind of exclusion there. See, if you go, if you go against the labor code, which is what the Talent Agencies Act is, you're gonna die. Y'all gonna die, because it's the labor and they're gonna kill you. Leave labor alone. Go and modify the Business and Professions Code. Isn't this a great idea? Yeah, it is. I, I wrote an amicus brief and it didn't help the, the, the music managers fight the TAA, so I agree with you. It's that everyone's fight's been fruitless. Yeah. That's another tactic that's interesting. Business and Professions Code. Thank you. So get an exclusion, yeah. This is kind of a spiritual follow-up to this, but it, with regards to AB5, um, in terms of making cutouts for musicians, making cutouts for composers, you know, how, how does that exist without having to say that you do hair? There has to be, you know what, this is what I suggest you do. You, got, you know who Jordan Bromley is? Does anybody know who Jordan Bromley is besides David and some of the lawyers that I work with? Um, he is a lawyer. At Manat, and he has taken up the charge on AB5 pro bono, like I took up the charge on the MMA. This forum needs to have Jordan Bromley up here asking questions and coming up with a strategy on AB5. I mean, there's a long list of exceptions for various professions. Uh, it just, and it, and it even, the list of exclusions includes fight artists, and, and, and it's just, well, yeah, so I've been working with State Senator Stern on this, and it's like, you know, the upshot, the end game for every little, you know, conversation we have ends up being, we have to wait for it to be, it's, it's just, it's a poorly written model. Every piece of legislation, there's always a strategy. You have to figure out who the people are that move the needle. Like that's what you gotta figure out. Seriously, you have to put on your best Claire Underwood and go black ops. When Irving Azoff tried to get me to run for the Senate, I said, are you fucking crazy? So everything I do has to be publicly, like I am behind the scenes. I am the girl behind the scenes pulling the thing. 
like the Wizard of Oz, okay? I can't have that shit be known. Like, figure out who your people are behind the scenes, you know? And I want to just say this one thing, too. This is important. For this kind of regulation, latch on to the Republicans. I'm going to tell you why. Republicans hate regulation. They hate it. They hate being told what to do with their personal property or their business. They hate it. So that's why they're great for copyright. They hate regulation. So I would go into the Republicans and I would go, it's my property, it's my client's property, and they're trying to compel us. They hate compel. They're trying to comp <laughs> compulsory licensing, regulation. They hate government regulation. They go, yeah, this is terrible. I'm on it. I'm going to get on this for you. I'm going to spearhead this. And they, like, you know, they're on it. They're like, mm. And then I go across the hall to the, to the Democrats and I go, we're small businesses. We can't unionize. We have no health insurance. And they go, this is terrible. We got to help. And before you know it, they're all working together and they don't even know it. It's on the same piece of legislation. AB5, you have to latch on to the Republicans. Like someone was telling me, oh, Richard Bloom's going to be. And it's like, no, he's not. I go, go find your most right wing re conservative Republican because all they care about is no regulation and money. Okay? This will speak to them. I say one thing that's challenging about AB5 for the film business is the studios really don't have much to lose because they always hire employees. It's really the independents yeah. that are struggling. Let's take one more question and then we'll, we'll turn it to reception. David Helfer. Um, talking about Jordan Brownlee. So I have a call with him tomorrow. Good. One of the issues that's come up in representing the Gilman Music Supervisors, are there situations in your opinion where AB5 could actually benefit certain classes of people. And I use the, the music supervisors as an example. Mm -hmm. You get hired to work on a movie, you get paid 25000 You end up working on the movie for a year and a half. No benefit, yeah. no overtime, no additional pay. If the guild actually was, if the members of the guild were actually employees, would they have to get a weekly salary with that? benefits that would be afforded, would they actually make more money by being a weekly employee like a music editor? So That's are there categories question. of people in the music industry such as music supervisor might be benefited by AB5? Maybe. Jordan Bromley. Yeah. David Helfand, everybody. Yeah, David a legend. Helfand. Thank you, Dina. Thank you so much. Let's, now I think we should have a reception or else you'll never leave here. Thank you for listening to a Conversation with Series podcast hosted by the Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute. For more information, check out the links in the show notes. You can also find information on upcoming conversations at www.swlaw.edu. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to hear new episodes and give us a rating and a review if you can. We hope to have you back again for more conversations. Bye until the next time.